You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Talking to someone who knew the late, great P.E. McAllister well, who was a phenomenal supporter of the opera, not only in the United States, but right here in Indianapolis. That is Miss Angela Brown, soprano. Yes. She is a proud graduate of IPS. Yes. Do you want to go ahead and say it? Because you always say it. Well, all of the schools that I went to in IPS or just the high school? Just the high school. Crispus Attucks High School. Yay. <laughs> we appreciate your time. We're excited for today's conversation. Uh, I've seen you perform a few times, mm-hmm. but the listeners will have seen you perform probably many times, most spectacularly as Yuletide's person who makes it happen. Oh. To see you walk on stage at Yuletide, if you looked in the audience... The smiles that come just by you walking on with your beautiful <laughs> smile makes a difference. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. For we are me. also joined by Danielle Shockey, CEO of Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Uh, because I saw Angela recently, I'm going to start, even though Angela uh, is making time for us and what is a busy time for her. What is it like mm-hmm. to be someone who makes other people happy? All the time. Oh, my goodness. You're putting a lot on me. (laughs) Someone that makes people happy all the time. Well, I guess as a performer, that's kind of your job. You know, Um, I have always said that if I don't look like I'm having a good time, I know the people in the audience are not having a good time. And it's my responsibility as a performer to 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 spread love and joy, especially if I'm doing a show such as Yuletide. Um, I also feel that way about my opera performances and my school performances that I take um, to colleges and universities and also grade schools. So I'm about entertaining and educating, if you will, and and uh, spreading love and joy and and being happy and. That's what I love is to to be able to show the love of my craft on stage to others. Before we get to a little bit about your your background and growing up here in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and uh, we definitely want to mention you're a member of the IPS Hall of Fame. Yes. And One a of, Girl Scout, Robert. You missed that in the bio. It wasn't in the bio. Oh. <laughs> Angela. 
Yeah. You please add that to your bio. Okay, I'm sorry. I have <laughs> Janet, if you hear this, add it to my bio, girl. Plus, I figured you were going to, Danielle, bring lead with that. I didn't mean to bury the lead. But you are someone, Angela, mm-hmm. who gets something, receives something on a regular basis that a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people in their lives ever receive. And that's a standing ovation. What's it like to be at the Metropolitan Opera or the Kennedy Center or in Vienna Uh. or Moscow and get that standing ovation? Wow. You know, it is like the scariest thing and the most fulfilling thing to have people it depends because sometimes standing ovations are rolling where you have people stand up and trickles and they get up and they, you know. But then when you have the ones that just kind of, those are the ones that scare you. And you're like, oh, my God, it's <laughs> a heady experience. You you feel it's otherworldly. It's like an out of body experience when people are cheering for you and yelling for you. And it's it's part of your paycheck. You know, it's like that is the stuff dreams are made of. You know, I've done my job. Now, do I get standing ovations all the time? No. But having a hearty hand clap and, you know, some bravas or bravos yelled at me, you know, people smiling, coming back to me, standing in a long receiving line to shake my hand and tell me how I touched their hearts, how I touched their lives, telling me that this was the first time they've ever been to an opera or little kids coming. I really, really love what you do. I want to do what you do, Miss Brown. I mean, it's nothing like being able to wrap your arms around an audience member that has just witnessed what you have taken so long to prepare for them. And they have tears in their eyes. It's just, it's otherworldly. I, I, it's, it, it feels great. <laughs> because who gets, who gets that sort of audience? It's, it's people who give speeches or performers or sports mm-hmm. uh, personalities. And so just, just the vocations in general right. don't put themselves in that position. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first one you ever received as, as a performer, as an adult performer, and were you thinking about all the work that you put in to carry off a performance that elicited that response? Wow. Um, I can tell you the most meaningful, one of, I should say, one of the most meaningful uh, standing ovations was, because um, it wasn't my first one, but it was at the Metropolitan Opera. I had stepped in for a colleague that had gotten ill, and I had to sing the last act. Now, I only sang the last act of Aida. And I remember that night getting a standing ovation for that. And then when I actually sang the whole role uh, a few nights later, having the whole audience stand and flood down the aisles 
to the front, the proscenium of the pit of where the orchestra is and just clapping and yelling and brava and go girls and just clap. It was amazing. Tears. And tears, tears. I cry very easily. So I cried most of my and most of my applause at the end of a show because it you don't think about how much work you've put in it at that time. You are just thanking the Lord, first of all, that you got through it. And second of all, that they're not throwing tomatoes. So <laughs> <laughs> Have you, overripe fruit. Have you experienced you know? that before, the tomato throwing? No, no. That's that's an old thing. I hope that never, ever <laughs> comes back for anyone, not just me. But yeah. You which of those, I'm sorry, Robert, which of those do you feel like you made it? Like when, what performance in your past you're like, wow, this is, I'm, I'm good. I'm doing well. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Not good. Like, yeah, yeah, I understand like, what you're saying, <laughs> girlfriend. Oh, uh, I still am careful not to get too cocky because, you, yes, I am a professional. Yes, I appreciate applauses and standing ovations, but I am careful to never think that I deserve them myself. I don't say those words because when I, if, if and when I don't get them, what do I do then? You know, what am I going to think? I put I don't put that much pressure on me. I just go and do my job. It is my job to elicit those reactions. And if I did good, I'll really get the reaction. But if they are clapping, I have made my I've done my job. I've done my job. I've, I've earned my keep, you know, so I, I, I am safe not to get too cocky. You talked a little bit about going to IPS and growing up here. Mm -hmm. Tell the Leaders and Legends podcast audience about your childhood very quickly and which sort of music turned you on first and then the matriculation over to opera. Oh, well, I grew up on 30th and Broadway. My grandfather was a Baptist minister. My mother was his daughter, and she sang and played music in the house all the time, nonstop. But it was always R&B. I didn't even have a, a diet of gospel music at that time. And my grandfather was a Baptist minister. Um, Motown or more? It was more Motown. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the pieces on Saturday mornings before we could watch. Well, we could watch cartoons until noon and then the TV would go off. The stereo, the wood stereo, you know, there was a big piece of furniture would go on. And my mother would put on barefooting, dun, 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 <laughs> the barefooting and or either uh, there was some 78s that she had that she would play. Uh, from uh, oh, it was a oh, 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 yes, I'm the great pretender. Ooh, ooh. We would listen to all kinds of music and clean. And and she loved Stevie Wonder, she loved Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, and so that was the music that was played in the home. Now she was very sure to expose us to musical theater because she loved it. My mother wanted to be a toe dancer. I still to this day don't know what a toe dancer is, but it wasn't a ballerina. It was someone, I don't know. 
she just always said a toe dancer. But my grandfather, because he was a minister, wasn't going to have one of his children out there, you know, <laughs> shaking up her whatever. You know, so dancing wasn't something that she could aspire to do. But she was a singer. And she would sing in in her daddy's church, you know, after he would preach a sermon. And she would always take us to starlight musicals. At Butler. At Butler. So I've seen, I can't remember all of them because I was so young, but she made sure that we had social graces. We knew how to act in public. We knew how to eat in public. We, so we didn't go to the McDonald's and stuff. Nothing wrong with those places, but that's where a kid can be a kid, right? You can run around and act crazy. Well, honey, she made sure we went to play, the restaurants where you sat down. You walked in. You put your napkin in your lap. You knew how to use your fork and knife. You knew how to close your mouth when you chewed. She was very, um, she wanted to make sure that her kids were ready for the world. So that we could be good citizens of the world. So she made sure we had some culture in our life. She made sure that we we had some fun in our lives. And um, I that 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 was that was exactly the way our household was. But you grew up in a in a we're relatively the same age. So you I know a little bit about the music of the seventies and early eighties, especially. You grew up in a terrific musical time. Yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire, oh, Cool in the Gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were a blues fan, especially heavier blues, there was mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, and you had all sorts of the disco era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool which, in the Gang. <laughs> cool in the Gang. Which which musical groups or genre did you enjoy the most? But at a certain point, you turned to a form of music. That is unique, to say the least. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to concentrate on that as opposed to singing rock, pop, gospel? Well, I was part of a group um, here. And I mean, because I sang all genres of music and um, I mean, all genres of music. I was always singing for the opening of an envelope here in Indianapolis. I uh, sang for the... uh, Indiana Black Expo, uh, like I would sing the National Black Anthem for that. Um, I, like I said, I sang in my grandfather's church all the time. I sang in musicals at Christmas Addicts. Um, and my favorite music was R&B. Uh, but I was part of a gospel choir here called the Steve Coleman Concert Choir. And before that, I was part of the Greater Indianapolis Youth for Christ Choir. So I had all of these genres of music in me. But it wasn't until I went to Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama. It was college at the time, but university now that I realized I had this affinity for classical music. And even though I had been introduced to it at Crispus Attics by my um, uh, choir director, Robert Fleck and Miss Hart, uh, it wasn't something that I felt like I could do. I sang for the the, the citywide, um, oh, those those solo competitions. And I always sang one song, and that was from uh, the Messiah, He Shall Feed His Flock. He shall feed his flock. I never had the breath to continue it on. So I always made sure I had a good K. Flock like, so I could take that catch breath, baby. Like a shepherd. And I would always win. 
But it was still something I was like, ah, I don't want to sing that kind of music. I was into my musical theater. But like I said, it wasn't until I went away to school that I found out I had an affinity for it. And I took to the technique like a duck to water. And I always say opera chose me. I didn't choose it. And the first after I began to study and everything, because I'm skipping all around the story and I'm going to let you get deeper. But um, when someone said, Angela, at my at, at, at Oakwood, they said, Angela, you sing gospel music because what I wanted to do when I went to Oakwood, I wanted to be a singing evangelist. OK, um, but I now feel like the Lord has given me bigger pulpits. Um, and a colleague of mine, a student peer of mine said to me, Angela, when you sing gospel music, you can stand up against all of them. But when you sing classical music, you are head and shoulders above everyone. And that gave me courage to continue studying classical music because I was accepted by my peers. Um, I felt very funny about these new clothes that I was trying to fit in because I didn't feel like I fit in to that genre of music. Well, it's Eurocentric, to say the least. Very much so. And uh, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. But by by having one of my peers say, Angela, you can do this, it kind of, I was like, okay, let me try, you know. And uh, I ended up going from Oakwood to Indiana University. And I don't know where you want me to stop the story. No, that's fine, because I want to let make sure that Danielle gets here and asks her particular questions, because one of the things that Danielle does is she's just got a unique perspective. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the folks we've had on the podcast mm-hmm. have gone to IU in one form or another. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be at IU at one of truly the best music schools in the world? Well, um, how I even got there was through being at Oakwood University. My teacher there, Ginger Beasley, was also a student of Virginia Zayani, who was my teacher at IU. And Ms. Zayani would invite Ginger Beasley's student, a studio, down once a year to have a weekend of uh, master classes with her. And when I went to study with Ms. Zayani for the first time, I was a mezzo-soprano. And I sang for her, and she turned to my teacher, snatched her glasses off, and said, Ginger, Angela is not a mezzo-soprano. She is a Verdian soprano. The blood of Verdi courses through her veins. <laughs> darling, she turns to me, darling, when you are done studying with Ginger, I will take you in my studio. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> she was serious about that. So what is, and, what is for those of us who are mm-hmm. not educated in music, what's the difference between the two soprano labels you just mentioned? Well, it's, a diff- it's, it's an alto and a soprano, one being lower, one being higher. I started off as a lower soprano or a mezzo-soprano or an alto, and then I went to a higher soprano, not the highest, but a dramatic soprano that has creamy low notes, um, a smooth middle, and sparkly high notes. So it's like the whole voice is just it just oozes drama, you know. It's it's a dramatic soprano, and Verdi is a composer that has a lot of dramatic uh, uh, pieces that he wrote for 
my kind of voice. And um, it wasn't until I went to Indiana University that I knew that I would be that type of soprano. So I went back to Oakwood, studied hard, graduated, went to IU. And then being at IU, I just knew that I would be a small fish in a big pond. And I was very intimidated because it's 1500 was the number at that time. School of Music. I mean, it was called the Music Factory. Okay. Uh, I'm just little old Angela Brown. Who am I? You know, but found out rather in quick order that I ended up being a big fish in a big pond. (laughs) And I had no idea how to fill big fish flippers. (laughs) And uh, I just. I, I was just me. I, I I can be no one else but me. And um, the dean of the School of Music at the time, Charles Webb, heard me in an audition, a cattle call audition that they have at the beginning of every school year. And I was number 120 that day. Okay. And he said he was sitting at his desk filling out paperwork because he had traveled somewhere. So he was had a lot of things he had to still catch up on when he got back. And his his secretary, Pam, at the time, I remember her name, uh, was playing. They videotaped everything for him. And she was playing all the auditions while he was doing his paperwork at his desk. And I came up. I was doing Visidarte. I started to sing. His head raised, he said, and he looked and he listened to my audition. And he said, Pam, who is this? She comes in, looks around the corner, looks at the video monitor and says, that's Angela Brown. He was like, oh, okay." During the week, I got a call to fill in for one of the teachers that had fallen ill uh, for um, a concert that they did throughout the uh, IU school system. And I filled in for that particular teacher and Dean Webb and I became this sort of duo (laughs) (laughs) at that point, going around singing for all IU functions and representing IU. And uh, that was one of the, the, the high points of my time at IU that I got a chance to to go around and sing for IU as the quote-unquote voice of IU during the time I was there. The fight song included? I never sang the fight song. I never sang the alma mater. I did a lot of, uh, because it was the school of music. I was representing the school of music. So I did a lot of opera, a lot of arias, spirituals, art songs with the school, with the dean. So you've mentioned... uh in your past, all these different people who have left an impression. You remember the secretary's name. I did. So I'm curious. My background's education, and I can only imagine you in a classroom and how children must just be. I'm mesmerized listening to you. Oh. So my question is, mm-hmm. who was that? Is is there a person for you, a, a mentor, a role model, someone who's who, who really lifted you up throughout your career? There's been so many. And I'm afraid to even start name dropping because, you know, then you leave somebody out and then it's like, oh, but this is one I'm pretty sure that everybody would forgive me. My mama, baby, Freddie Mae Brown was my 
biggest fan and supporter. And she always said, Angie, just go for your destiny. Just do what it is that makes you happy. I am so proud of you at this point because I think I was just uh, uh, a student at the time. She was like, if you didn't do anything else, I would be okay. She says, but baby, the world is waiting for you, for your talent, for who you are. She said, just remember, keep your wits about you. Don't let anyone be able to say anything negative or nasty about you. Um, keep just just keep doing well. Keep doing good. Um, yeah, she was my biggest supporter, my biggest supporter. But now, if I had to start naming names beyond my mama, I would say Ginger Beasley who was my first voice teacher that really began to to break down the nuts and bolts. I say that Ginger Beasley was the author of my voice and Madam Virginia Zayani was the finisher of my voice because um, because the two of them worked in tandem to uh, create, you know, um, and help to uh, fine tune what the Lord had given me innately, you know, the the, the the lump of coal and they put enough pressure on me that it became a diamond. And uh, so, yeah, th- between those two ladies and then there are so many people that have really helped to propel and push my my career. Um, Robert Driver, who was one of the creators of India of uh, uh, Indianapolis Opera, but he gave me my big breaks in Philadelphia to do every role that I ever wanted to do. He and Susan Ashbaker uh, gave me opportunities that I probably would not have had to really work out the kinks without being on on uh, like at the Metropolitan Opera, the, the the roles that I did at Philadelphia, I I got a chance to either do or cover at the Met. So those were two people that really gave me big opportunities early on in my career. Because um, like I said, I'm going to leave people out, and as they come up in my mind, I might just interject them real quick. But and of course, my agent. Janet Gerald, who she and I have been together uh, on a handshake since 19, really the, 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 since 1995, the creation of my first CD that came about when I was doing a um, week of residency out at Stanford University when I was with Dean Webb. And I was still a student at, at IU and I met um, Helen Bing, who gave the money for my first CD project. I was singing, I was singing in President Casper's house um, at uh, Stanford. And um, Conda, yeah, no, mother. Mother. Yes, Stephen Bing's mother. And um, I actually, guess who was at that dinner? Condoleezza Rice. Right, so I was sorry to say because she was at, at Stanford. Di- yes, mm-hmm. she was at that dinner. And she's, of course, a classical pianist. And so I'm sitting, I was a vegetarian at the time, and I'm sitting at the table, and they were they were uh, serving um, 
rare roast beef, and I'm looking at this blood juice swirling around on this table. And I was like, <laughs> Lord Jesus, I can't do this. And so I'm trying not to go, I don't want to eat this. And I didn't eat it. So we, I'm having conversation with everybody, looking like I'm eating, but I'm not, y'all. And uh, Helen Bing says, so, and so President Casper sitting at the, the front of the table, Helen Bing sitting right across from me. And she says, Angela, your voice is so lovely. She says, do you have any recordings? I was like, no, ma'am. And I was like, and she was like, well, would you like to have a recording? I was like, yes, ma'am. I would love to have a recording, but there's no money to do anything like that. She says, oh, I'll, I'll sponsor a recording for you. And, I, you know, it's not like you have things like that just tossed in the air at you all the time. You know, and I was like, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Clearly not thinking that this lady's going to send me money. She says, I'm going to be traveling in January. And in February, when I get back from Africa, I will send you a check. I will send Dean Webb a check. And I was like, OK. Uh, in March. Dean Webb called me up and said, Angela, I have a check here from Helen Bing and we got a project to do. I said, "Okay." (laughs) so that is how my first project came about. And uh, so she was definitely I called her. I call her my fairy godmother because she has from the project uh, to having me out at Stanford later on when they built Bing Recital Hall to help to buying one of my dresses for when I won. Uh, the uh, Metropolitan Opera competition. I mean, she's been in my life, just, you know, touching my life here and there. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's just been heady. There are so many people that have been so good to me. The Lord has just blessed me to have people that thought enough of me and my talent and believed in me enough to keep pushing me. And now I just feel so blessed to be able to give back just a little bit with the things that I do with my uh, organization, Morning Brown. That's actually one of my next questions was, Mm -hmm. tell us about Morning Brown, your nonprofit, really to help youth have access to music who may not otherwise. Is that correct? Exactly. And it's also, um, it it brings culture to cultural deserts. There are so many, what really spawned this is I was in Chicago and I was with Lyric Opera of Chicago and I was doing some outreach there and I didn't realize that Chicago has cultural deserts. It's Chicago where they have the symphony, the opera, the, or, you know, everything for you to have cultural bombardment and there are people that haven't been downtown Chicago ever, you know. Be, and I found that out by being in those areas where there are um, cultural deserts in Chicago. So I was like, well, if there, it's happening there, I know it's happening in other places. And uh, then traveling to Mississippi where they have lots of food deserts. And I was like, it's the same thing there as far as culture. It's nothing wrong with all these genres of music. There's nothing wrong with being big supporters of sporting events. But opera is something that fed my soul. And I came from that same thing. I mean, I'm a Hoosier. You know, we love our pork and we love our football and our basketball and, our, you know, and all those things and all different kinds of uh, music, but it was because I 
did know about musical theater. I did know and was exposed to uh, opera and ballet and musical theater that I knew that other kids because music and all those things are being taken out of the schools and have been taken out of the schools, that they should have that opportunity to be able to paint with all the palettes, all the colors on their palette. And if you don't know what a mushroom tastes like, don't say you don't like it until you try it. And I am a proponent of at least making it palatable for them to like it. So my show, Opera from a Sister's Point of View, brings uh, brings um, uh, not Morning Brown brings culture to cultural deserts, but but Opera from a Sister's Point of View demystifies opera for audiences that normally wouldn't go. And I try to make it very fun and tongue in cheek so that it's not so such a scary, stuffy thing where people can't find themselves in. Because, baby, if you break down some of these opera plots, you done found your uncle, your aunt. He's like, mm-hmm, I remember a situation like that. It's very base and every day, you know, but it's just put in different times with different languages. And opera is not that deep. It's really not. So I try to make it so that it's fun. And I've had so many people come up to me after they have heard an opera from a sister's point of view performance and say, well, if it was broken down to me like that, maybe I would like opera. I just did a show in Chicago this weekend for the Indiana Society of Chicago. They were honoring IU. And um, by me being an IU person, they had me come and do the entertainment for it. And I did opera. Now, these people... You know, I didn't know if they would like my brand of of entertainment because they had a country band, you know, there as well. So I was able to break it down and have fun with it. Those folks was up on their feet, giving me my my payment, a standing ovation and enjoying opera. And that's what I want to do. I just want everyone to have the opportunity to say, yes, I like it because I know about it. I have heard it. And somebody, especially in the community that I come from, the African-American community, uh, can say, and someone that looks like me is out here doing it. So I can also see myself, if I want to, having a career in classical music because I, too, am represented, you know. So it's about diversity. It's about exposure, and I love what I do. Can't tell. <laughs> you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Angela Brown. Who is she? She's someone you applaud, someone you smile at, someone who makes you happy, whether you see her at Yuletide, the Kroger, I'm sure. 
Yes. (laughs) IPS schools. She is a soprano. She's sung in places such as Vienna, New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Moscow. She has received notices in the New York Times, CNN, Oprah Magazine, Ebony Magazine, Essence, Classical Singer, Reader's Digest, and many more. And she's with us today. When you're in the shower, when you're in the car, when you're in the elevator all by yourself, what do you sing? Oh. Um, when I'm in the car, I don't, when I'm in the shower, I'm warming up. If I sing, I'm warming up, uh, to go and sing some opera, but in the car, baby, you will hear R and B. I'm an R and B. I'm still my mama's baby. I love eighties, seventies, six, not so much six, but seventies and eighties music, R and B. That's my jam. That's my jam. Now, right now I'm listening to Christmas music. (gasps) I love 105.7 because it's <laughs> Christmas all the time, and I love it. You know, that's yeah. probably the greatest of all Facebook debates. <laughs> when to put up your tree, yep. when to start the Christmas music. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when did you put up your tree, if you have one, and when did you start singing Christmas music? Well, you know, this time it's getting earlier and earlier for me um, because I love holiday music. I love it because I have a holiday CD. And I just love it. So I want to say I put up, um, I didn't put up a tree. I don't necessarily do a tree so much anymore because we don't have little ones. But I love poinsettias. I love a nice uh, winter kind of, you know, I'll put up some lights, you know. Um, But I think I started playing Christmas music Thanksgiving evening. (laughs) Do you have a favorite song to sing? Ooh, a favorite, ooh, so many. But I guess one of my favorites is Mary Did You Know? Mm. Uh, because I believe in the reason for the season. I mean, Rudolph and Santa are cool, but <laughs> it's about Jesus for me, you know. And Mary Did You Know just tells that story. Uh, I love that one. and I. But I do love seasonal or uh, the wintertime kind of uh, Christmas songs like Let It Snow and... Um, Oh, have a well. No, that's the Christmas one. Have a holly jolly Christmas. Um, uh, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Um, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, I love the ballads. I love the ballads. And then I love the new pieces that that are being done. I love uh, Anita Baker's Christmas Fantasy album. Oh, love me some Anita Baker. Most underrated voice. Yes. I be, oh, she is fabulous. And she, it's really pretty f- oh. ridiculous how under, maybe she's not underrated, but she's usually not in the list of folks when they start talking Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston, but yeah. she should be there. Yes. Oh, definitely. You have worked, reading through your biography, you have worked with and been associated with some real household names. What was it like to work with someone, for example, named Marvin Hamlish, who was certainly in the top, almost on the Mount Rushmore of composers and musical geniuses in the last half of the 20th century and beyond. Definitely. Oh, Mr. Marvin. Oh, miss him. Miss him. He was so nice, just everyday easy. And his wife, Terry, was so, so cool. I met him through... 
Richard Daniel Poor, who wrote this opera, Margaret Garner, that I ended up um, debuting. It was originally written, the the role of Scylla was originally written for Jesse Norman, but I ended up doing it. And I met Marvin Hamlish because he was a good friend of Richard's. And I ended up doing um, a Christmas um, at... Oh, the Kennedy Center with uh, Mr. Hamlish. And then he wrote a song for me for the art, a song for the Indianapolis Prize, which is uh, it it, it uh, gives big dollars to conservationists. And I ended up singing for that. And it was uh, the song that he wrote with I think it was with the Indianapolis uh, Children's Choir and 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 myself and uh just working with him he was so easy I mean, just he's worked to with work barbara with. streisand carly simon the list goes on and on and i and he put me at at ease he put me at ease and he was just fun and i also had a chance to actually go with him now that i'm thinking about it to a retirement home and and we and that he would go to once a year and i was the soloist that he took with him one year and it was he myself and and my agent janet and we just talked about stuff and which it was just regular he was just an easy guy to work with and i'm missing i'm missing when you walked out on stage and saw famous faces did it make you nervous? Did it inspire you? Did you ever walk out on stage and notice X? I won't throw any names out there because I don't know if they were actually there. Or Y and went, wow, he's here. Or wow, she's here. I make it my rule not to know anybody that might be famous, especially in the audience. One because I don't need those nerves. Okay? <laughs> and two, an audience is an audience is an audience. And every audience, whether they are 10 to 10,000 or 100,000, deserves the best that I can give them. And if I know a certain person or people are in the audience, it might be, they, they might, you know, it, it might go to my head in a certain kind of way. If you came to see Angela Brown, you're going to get Angela Brown regardless. So everyone is special. So I, I try not to think about that. Rodney Dangerfield famously told all the comedians who came on his stage in New York City, and by comedians, I mean people like Jim Carrey, Jerry mm-hmm. Seinfeld. I mean, mm-hmm. that lead. He said, don't ever change yourself for the audience. Right. The audience is there to see you. Exactly. Have you ever walked out and seen a president or a secretary of state or a prime minister? I have. Go ahead. When I was in, it was right after Katrina. Um, they invited me to sing for the prayer breakfast at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And that was under the Bush administration, the George Bush administration. And I walked out on the stage um, and I saw Condoleezza Rice, I saw Rumsfeld, 
I saw, of course, George Bush and Laura Bush. Um, and I had just met them backstage. And T.D. Jakes was, um, Minister T.D. Jakes was the, um, the speaker that morning. And after that, he invited me to his church to to sing at his for his congregation. So yeah, I I have seen some some politicians and things in my day. One quick question mm-hmm. before we let Danielle finish up and then I'll ask you the five questions with which we end all podcasts. The biggest audience you ever sang before is probably in 2017 at the 101st running of the Indianapolis 500. What was that experience like when you walk out outside the pagoda and literally see hundreds of thousands of people waiting for you to give it to them? I, my knees shook. And, you know, I always believe in healthy butterflies. You know, I, I, the Lord has blessed me not to have um, nerves that keep me from performing, but they propel me to perform. It, I always have the biggest smile on my face. I'm always grinning. So my smile, I'm thinking about my mother. I'm thinking about the ancestors. My mother is one of my ancestors now that is is going, go girl. This is a time for you. This time was made for you. And I just, I enjoy it. I give it. I give 100%, 110% every time I'm in front of an audience. So like I was saying before, it doesn't matter how big the audience is. I just want to give a good show. I want to do my best because I'm the little engine that could. And my mama said I could. So I do this because she said I could. So speaking of Indianapolis, you could live anywhere in the world. You've traveled the world, but yet you still call this home. Mm-hmm. Why? And talk to us about what what blessings you think we have here in our city in the arts community. And what's your impression of its future? Ooh, um, I still live here in Indianapolis. I came back to Indianapolis because I did live in New York for a time to get my career started. Um, but then my parents began to get older. And start to have some health things. And it costs a grip to live in New York City. (laughs) Okay. I was like, child, please. There is an international airport there. They had just fixed it up in 2008, I think is when it opened or thereabout. And uh, that's kind of when my parents began to to fail. And um, I said, why not? I can park my car at the mall and go back and get my car and... (laughs) It's there most of the time and not have to worry about it. Pay a million dollars just to park and go grocery shopping. I mean, New York is beautiful. It's heady. It's wonderful. It's not my thing that I want to live there. I can go and visit. Ooh, child, it's fabulous to visit. But Indianapolis is home. It's familiar. Um, my friends are here. My family is here. Uh, now my husband is here. My husband um, is from Paris. Well, it's from Guadeloupe. And uh, lived in Paris when I met him at the, on the Paris Opera stage. Who So he was a dancer. And so it's wonderful to have him here with me now. And as far as the art scene here is in Indianapolis, I mean, what's not to like? You have everything you could want. And the 
the future is bright for the arts here in Indianapolis. I mean, you have the symphony, you have the opera, you have all, you have dance. And then you have offshoots. You have several of everything. You can do and find anything you want on a weeknight here in Indianapolis through the weekend. It's total entertainment. All you have to do is choose where you want to go and sit down and go. You know, Um, it's just fun. And I'm very excited to be a part of this. I tell people all the time. When you see me in Indianapolis sitting around, that might mean you need to invite me to dinner because I'm not working. But <laughs> but now that I'm I mean, I still have a, a, a big calendar and I have my foundation and I'm doing things. I'm enjoying going out and enjoying these different arts organizations and becoming a socialite, so to speak, so that I, too, will know these people. And they just not know who Angela Brown is, but I know who they are. And so it's been fun getting to 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 go out and go to these different shows and stuff. And we have a lot of talent here, just like when I was a kid. So. I'm not surprised by that at all. So I want you to talk real quickly because we talked off air about a project you might want to work on someday. Because I have to say, if you had a podcast, I would be your first listener. I oh. am, I've so enjoyed listening and getting oh, to know you. you. And I'm sure thank our audience you. would love to hear what would that look like and sound like and, and why would you want to start a podcast? Well, um, because I love to talk, first of all. Uh, I think I have things to say. Uh to impart to not only young people, I would the podcast would look more like my opera from a sister's point of view, where I would tell witty, funny stories about the operas and play some um, arias and let people know what they said, you know, what what arias are. And, you know, so it would be more entertainment, but there would be a, a, another part of it where I would play music by some of my contemporaries, uh, some recordings so that they would know about these people and they can check them out. It would be a way to to boost opera audiences and also to 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 put faces out there of some of my friends that are doing big things in the opera world. So, yeah. And I can also spend some of my wisdom about the business and um just what I like. Yeah. Well, you have a listener. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We end all podcasts with the same five questions. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Lightning round. Okay. Are these quick? Because I can wax on. You they, see. I they can, they can be quick. Okay. What was your first job? Oh, my goodness. My first real job was at Methodist Hospital. I was um, a diabetic aide. I worked in the, uh, in, in, in the calf. In the calf is what we called it. And I um, served... Uh, patients and I would do makeups for those that had di- the head diabetes to make sure that their blood sugars uh, would even out. So I was a diabetic aide mm-hmm, at Methodist Hospital. This particular question is particularly appropriate. What was your first concert you attended? Oh my gosh. The first concert ever that I attended, I can remember. Being in school, going on a field trip, and it was something at Clues Hall. And it was maybe the Nutcracker, maybe uh, it was some singing involved. There was music involved. There was a symphony involved. There was dancing involved. So maybe it was the Nutcracker. But that was a field trip 
Do you remember like the first rock or pop or R&B concert yes. you went to? The OJs. My mom and daddy took us to see the OJs. Yes. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? And So I Sing by Rosalind Story, which is a book about African-American uh, opera singers. Yes. And So I Sing. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? I think it would be Marian Anderson singing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial because she was not allowed to sing in the hall with the Daughters of the Revolution. We did a podcast with Judge Sarah Evans Barker, and that's what she chose as well. Mm. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? I've never even thought about this. Um, Two-hour dinner off the record with someone living. Yes. Come back. Okay, here's <laughs> Pass. the... Pass. <laughs> Phone a friend? Phone a friend. Yeah, I need some... Some help. You can choose Danielle. Well, yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> Let me ask another question. Mm-hmm. We're going to, this podcast is posted on Martin Luther King Jr.'s national holiday. Mm-hmm. That's when I'm going to post this. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you could sing for anyone in history, whom would you choose? Martin Luther King. Yeah. Yeah. Because... It's, it's, this is going to be selfish, the reason why I'm picking Martin Luther King, because he had the eyes and ears of everyone in history at that time. And uh, it would definitely pr- put me in front of other people that could propel my career. OK, I'm just, yeah, <laughs> Martin Luther King. <laughs> do you want to do the uh, dinner answer? Oh. Living today. I can't even... Condoleezza Rice wouldn't be a bad choice. Wouldn't be a bad choice, but she's not on the tip of my tongue. I want to say Crystal DeHaan, because me and Miss Crystal got on real good. Here in the city, I would love to have, because I just want to hug her neck one more time and tell her thank you. Crystal DeHaan. Leaders and Legends podcast is, in some ways, an IPS production. As an IPS kid, I enjoy talking to people who went to IPS either decades before me or contemporaneously. And I dare say that no other IPS kid has made so many people laugh and so many people smile as Angela Brown. And you're right up there. If there was a contest with Oscar Robertson, your fellow tiger. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you, Danielle, for being with us today. We cannot wait to hear you sing again. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This has been great fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.